0: and hello and welcome to get schooled with marcella Alonzo. today i welcome raquel savage thank you raquel for coming on please introduce yourself to my audience who you are how you be, um, entered sex work and what you're currently up to as of today
1: so I am Raquel Savage. I use she and her pronouns. I am a therapist, an educator, and a sex worker. I've been a sex worker for a decade doing full service work and online work, the full gamut. Um, and I've been a therapist for about five years. And I got into sex work because when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, which was in communications, I tried to get a job with my degree, couldn't get a job. So I tried to get a job with just entry level but requires a degree couldn't find a job so I tried to find a job that was like you have some education but it's not related to my field at all couldn't get a job and I went all the way down to like retail and um, restaurant and could not get a fucking job to save my life Uh, so I was like how can I monetize something that I'm already doing and something that I'm already good at and I randomly I had a Twitter at the time Which was an anonymous kind of like I was just talking about sex on the account, um, but people didn't know who it was behind the account. But men are stupid. So I said that I was going to charge people to fuck, essentially. And somebody went with it. Someone paid me five hundred dollars and came to my house. And that was the first time that I ever exchanged sex for money. And it was like, wow. I can do this. I think this is something that I can manage. Interesting. Looking back now, I would never see clients in my own house. um, And that's fine. If folks do that is nothing I would ever do now. But at the very beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. I had very few role models. I was just like trying to generate income. Um, And then I decided to move to Miami and every the rest is history, as Mm -hmm. they say, kind of just took off from there.
0: Well, I applaud you for putting in the effort of trying to get the job. And I have been there myself because the whole reason I got into sex work, my per self was I had tried, I even went to McDonald's and I remember they didn't hire me. I had a child at a young age and it was very difficult. I didn't get into sex work because I thought, Oh, this is going to be, um, easy, simple or whatever. I sometimes, you know, we try our effort to do everything and, that's what happened so now yeah. yeah and and I applaud you for your education um I know it's it's frustrating going through four years of college and then here you are trying to get a job and then now you know my daughter's going through it to herself um, so mm-hmm. you did go with sex work you did um get your master's right
1: yeah. So after I moved to Miami and I was doing sex work for a few years, I was trying to decide what else I wanted to do with my career and how else I wanted to expand my career. And I was thinking about that I am a sex worker and I have always been someone that people come to to talk about sex and people are comfortable um asking me questions and getting advice from me. And I've always been comfortable giving them advice. And I've always been open about my sexuality. And I was like, how can I extend that beyond sex work? And I was like, hmm, I'll maybe I could become a sex therapist. And so I started looking into therapy programs. And then I was like, fuck it, I'll just do a master's in counseling. Um, And so yeah, I I went ahead and I did my master's. And then it kind of transformed a bit, because instead of becoming a sex therapist, I I learned a lot about trauma. And um, that Therapists broadly don't have the skills and are not taught in graduate programs how to effectively process trauma. Like lots of therapists learn how to use CBT, and CBT is not a good or effective modality for trauma. So I kind of fell in love with trauma and the and the the skills and and modalities used to process it. And I also recognize that as a sex worker, we don't, therapists don't learn about sex workers in school. And so after I graduated, I essentially continued to do sex work. And I said, I'm not going to go work at any like random fucking agency. I'm going to wait until I can create something of my own where I can see sex worker clients, black and brown clients, queer and trans clients, um, and I can help them process trauma in an effective way. So it's it's interesting how it all kind of unfolded, but it is perfect because it ended up being exactly what I feel I'm really, really good at.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's a great thing. And it it is very much needed because a lot of sex workers, they just can't go and have regular. Fr- and you understand because you were yeah. a sex worker.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I understand, even before I was a sex worker, I understand, like, the limitations of therapy because lots of therapists fucking suck. <laughs> like, I've been to therapists who, um, if I, I, I had one therapist that I went for the first consultation and we were talking about an, uh, being sexually assaulted and she asked me, uh, what was the lesson there? And I'm like, why the fuck would you ask somebody who has been assaulted that question? And I have been in therapy situations where it's white women and they don't understand how to work with me as a black woman. Like there are just so many limitations um, that therapists are not equipped to really efficiently and empathetically work with folks. So it was like a combination of just like my early experiences of therapy before I was even a sex worker and then recognizing in grad school, we're not talking about sex work at all. In fact, the only time that we ever talked about sex work was briefly on the day that we talked about trafficking. And that was in this really small um, class where we were just talking about sexual assault. So it was like a crisis intervention class. And that day we were talking about sexual assault and we had somebody come in and do a little brief thing on trafficking. And in that tiny little module, it was like prostitution is trafficking porn causes trafficking like that's what that's what the students learned and me sitting there I'm like raising my hand and trying to excuse me argue without also like outing myself Um, and it was really fucked up and really hard and so yeah coming out of that I was like I need to create my own spaces where generally people can come uh, to therapy and feel safe and feel seen and understood Um, I want to create spaces where people can access therapy that is has a lens of anti oppression. So like the lady who asked me, what's the lesson I learned about being assaulted? That would never be asked, right? Like, I would be like, let's talk about rape culture. Let's talk about patriarchy, misogyny, whatever. And then lastly, of course, yeah, I wanted to and did create a space where sex workers can come to therapy. And there is no assumption that they're coming to therapy because they're sex workers like there's a range of things that sex workers want support with that have nothing to do with their sex work and sometimes it does right oftentimes I would say the majority of sex workers that I have seen as a therapist their main issues are not I'm a victim of my sex work it's Mm -hmm. mostly like my boyfriend's pissing me off my mom is a bitch (laughs) or like any regular kind of thing so right right yeah
0: no yeah yeah no um yeah, they they have various issues, but people will blame the sex worker. The therapist will exactly. say, oh, well, maybe if you didn't do that, things would work out better. Exactly. And they're not. Yeah, they're kind of putting the blame on you when you do go to therapy and you do. And then sometimes I personally had a really good male, white male therapist, which was I was lucky. I don't know what it is. He helped me, but I could never share with him that I was in sex work. Yeah. Um, but he was I'll give it to him probably the best one the best therapist i ever went to was a white male he wasn't necessarily the same race And the worst one i went to was a spanish woman believe it or not that i was like i couldn't even tell her i got the vaccine that she was so judgmental mm-hmm. so um it, that was it, it you know there's there's a need for th- there's a need for therapists there's a need in this country certainly for mental health yeah. Um and you know sex workers uh Like you said, you went everywhere looking for a job Mm -hmm. and what's going on in the media, I think is so bad because we're not hearing the voices of survival sex workers. We're not hearing the voices. We're only hearing what paid media is and paid media is I made a hundred thousand on OnlyFans. I'm, I'm doing all these, you know, that's not real sex workers. These are people that are placing ads and they're kind of, they're hurting other sex workers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I uh at the beginning of the pandemic before OnlyFans was like a household name, mm-hmm. it, OnlyFans was relatively lucrative. And it was because the only people who were on there were sex workers. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes that's how any site gets popular is that right. sex workers come on there, they popularize it, and mm-hmm. then the company changes the terms of service to kick them off. Um but at the beginning it was a great site to use and it was a a, a great resource and another way to kind of monetize and make money not to the extent of the glamorization or the glamorization where it's like 100k it wasn't that right but yeah. it was a, a a steady income generator mm-hmm. and unfortunately what i believe really shifted that and then we move into this like co-optation of like people who are not sex workers who got on there who are like selling nudes, but not selling videos or like, they show their tits, but they won't show their pussy. And it's like, Oh, I'm not this. And like this whole fucking thing, um, is that Beyonce made a song where she says something about OnlyFans. I might start mm-hmm. a OnlyFans and Beyonce is a huge star and people across so many different communities and cultures listen to her and so that kind of shifted in my opinion the trajectory and we were in lockdown so we were bored too and so there was this yeah. curiosity um and that in my opinion shifted the trajectory of only fans into this more popularized space where celebrities people who are not sex workers got onto the site and essentially fucking ruined it for sex workers who needed it and need it for income. Um, like that is the place that people, sex workers were utilizing to generate yeah. income. Now it's like totally fucked because of how oversaturated it is with people who are sex workers and with people who are not sex workers. Or
0: I call them pandemic Beckys. I call them exactly. the people that I, there's, I I noticed this, it was a ton of, and no offense to white women out there, but uh, I, I faced a lot of prejudice when I first entered sex work and now it's finally changed. I finally could be a brunette. Um, you know, uh, when I started in my day, I, I, lo- I was blessed to start dancing, but I couldn't go into certain hours. A lot of white women, they, that came from privileged backgrounds, got on OnlyFans. And, and I started seeing people that would leave an a M- uh, multi level marketing company and then start selling promo and coaching and all this unnecessary thing. And, s- kind of doing tactics that like by giving free trials away, you know, that started really hurting sex work and they don't realize what they did. And, you know, it really hurt. Uh, hurts a lot of black and brown folks out there because, because here you are. and And I was, you know, I started very young and you're trying to get a job. You're trying to get a job somewhere and you have no choice, but sex work. And then once you get in it you're getting criticized. Oh, why don't you get a regular job? Well, regular job won't take you. Yeah. And then yours I'm watching women that are leaving jobs that I would love to have to get into sex work because they just think it's so simple. They think it's so easy. And it's not. It's a constant um the constant roller coaster of ups and downs and being stigmatized and you go through a lot. I've been thankful that Everything sex work has helped me achieve, especially with my children. Um, I put one, now one is in law, hopefully finishing law school soon. And I got a little one that's just entering school. So, you know, I've raised two children thanks to sex work and there was times where you know, I would have to dance or whatever just to get the rent. You yeah. know, and I saw many years of dealing with that way before OnlyFans days. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it. we go through a lot. We go yeah, through a lot.
1: Absolutely. And it is unfortunate that the majority of press about OnlyFans focuses on the very, very small majority, excuse me, small minority of people who make a shit ton of money. Right. And I think about it a lot, like as parallel to just the U.S. economic structure, which is like the 1% makes a shit ton of money. And when things go bad for the rest of us, they generate even more income. Right. And similarly, in in with OnlyFans, a very, very small percentage of people makes a shit ton of money. And as the pandemic continued and it got harder for the majority of people, mm-hmm. obviously, the one percent <laughs> of OnlyFans girls who were making a shit ton of money made more, and so it's not reflective at all of the average experience or the average user experience of OnlyFans. Yeah. Um, and the majority of people who are making a shit ton of money, like you said, are white cis thin uh, women. Well, and- I I've,
0: I've seen larger white women make money. Like I've seen, I, in that defense, I will say, uh, la- like the larger white women. I have seen them make a good amount of money personally. So I just, they have it easy. Cause I have to, when they, people were selling promo, I remember I hooked up a friend when assisting job and she's like, so and you using this. And I go, I cannot buy yeah. that promo. Her yeah. audience does not like me. I know middle, yeah. middle of the country. Um, I have gotten DMs, go back to your country. And I was born in this country. You know what I'm saying? So the prejudice is. Yeah is very much real, but, um, people are not really, when they're doing these articles, they're not talking about their overhead. They're, they're very much misleading. And what happens is other people join sex work, they get frustrated and they're going through all this unnecessary stuff on top of everything else we deal with.
1: Yes. And unfortunately it then becomes that sex workers. And this is why earlier when I said glamorizing, I put quotes because this issue of The 1% who are making a shit ton of money get a lot of press. And then people who are not sex workers see that and think, Oh, it's so easy to do sex work. I'm going to go ahead and make an OnlyFans. They make an OnlyFans. They're struggling and then they feel a sense of shame around the decision that they've made now that they're not making any money. And unfortunately, from there, it turns into a conversation about, well, sex workers are bad. Sex workers are glamorizing sex work. Sex workers are stupid, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And it turns into this anti-sex work rhetoric, which has ramped up over the last few years um, alongside this like popularization of OnlyFans, which is just really interesting. Um, but that then leads to literal material impacts on sex workers. Like we've seen with Sesta Fossa, like we see with the new Bill Cosa, there's been so many legislation, there has been so much legis- legislation that directly impacts sex workers. Um, that is a result of people uh, turning their frustration and anger and disgust directly towards sex workers as opposed Mm. to the system itself or as opposed to media uh, latching on to clickbait stories. Like, the problem at the end of the day is not sex workers. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, sex workers, particularly the ones who are the most marginalized, the black and brown folks, the disabled folks, queer and trans folks, um, are the ones who bear the brunt of the burden there.
0: Right. That, yeah, no, that's, that's so true. And I'm glad you're stating this because that's what my show is all about is telling the truth and for other people to learn. Um, also, I think it's important, right? Um, since you've been a therapist helping deal with different addictions. So you've had that uh, addiction training too, which because um, uh, everybody, I not this job also can be hard for some, for instance, me and my cousin, we both started dancing at the same time. I was fortunate enough to start dancing sober. She was not. And because of that, to this day, she has dealt with addiction. Um, So I think that's important, too, that, you know, there's therapists and sex workers that can help deal with this for somebody like her. Because when she, here she is retired, she's finally quit sex work a long time ago. She still has this addiction, and she's never learned how to cope without alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, you have a lot of sex workers out there that might have done it in the past. And now they're, but, you know, they don't know. They don't know how to cope with stuff. It's very sad.
1: Yeah. And so a lot, this is definitely another area where therapists are not well equipped to navigate Supporting people because the way that therapists learn about addictions, addiction, and substance use is mostly centered around like 12 step models. And 12 step models are mostly inefficient and don't work mm-hmm. and are largely based in religion, right? Like if you go to any AA meeting, if you go to any NA meeting, whatever, they're based in um, mm-hmm. God and religion. And that's not an effective method for um, supporting people through diminishing or stopping use. And we know that that 12-step model, which is uh, centered around getting people to abstain entirely, is not effective or sustainable. And that's why people relapse frequently. So uh, a more effective approach that has been, been used for a long time and is also, I think, breaking into more organizing spaces and maybe into more therapeutic spaces is harm reduction. So rather than approaching um people who are navigating who are drug users uh, with this assumption of uh, you need to stop using all drugs, drugs are bad, or stop drinking entirely, it is more of recognizing people are going to use drugs, people are going to drink. There's a function in that behavior in some capacity, it's a coping method in some sort the world is fucking hard, working is <laughs> hard, capitalism is hard, we smoke, right. we high to be able to navigate that we have childhood trauma, whatever. So recognizing that there's a, a utility in whatever substance is being used and recognizing people are going to use substances. And so from there, figuring out how to reduce the harm of that substance, rather than saying it needs to be cold turkey, right. and um, which, again, ends up not being an effective method creates a lot of shame when there's relapse and creates a lot of not only criminalization, but stigmatization for people who are drug users and substance users. So, this is definitely another area where therapists generate more shame and harm and criticism um, because they're approaching drug users and substance users um, or people who use drugs and people who use substances um, with the, with 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 method m- modalities that are not effective, sure. rather than like. I think you said it was your sister or whomever saying like, yeah, let's talk about what the function is of drinking when you're on the job. Like, what does that do for you? And what way does that serve you? And okay, so I understand that, yeah, you need to maybe be a little bit more confident or you need to be not in your head as much or whatever when you're working. I wonder if instead of 10 drinks, it can be five drinks. Or I wonder if you're going to drink 10 drinks, we can get somebody to drive you home after work instead of you driving yourself, right? So this is like harm reduction principles. Mm -hmm. I understand the utility of the thing that you're doing. I have grace for it. I'm meeting you where you're at. You're at. Let's figure out how we can reduce the harm around this thing, rather than create an an, an entirely unrealistic goal of uh not drinking at all because all, the stressors are still there.
0: Right. Plus, my cousin said um, she's in Florida, but not in Miami. She went to a couple of meetings, and all it what she was was harassed by guys. Yes, <laughs> and and and, and uh, I know certain cities the meetings are better than others. Um, not every and I and the part of Florida she's in, I can imagine I would be scared. Of, like who yeah. would be at that meeting? But um, yeah. Uh, sometimes the meetings, you know, you run across a group that's uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, and Florida is a like it's a million dollar industry, uh, addictions and rehabilitation here, so. Yeah. The the intention or the the goal of the people who run these industries is not actually rehabilitation or reducing harm or reducing drug mm. or substance use. It's making money. So it's figuring out how to get how to how to exploit people who are coming in with whatever addiction that they have um, and generating a shit ton of money off of them. So it's not even it's capitalism. It's not even like these, which is another reason why these methods are not effective.
0: Oh, wow. That's terrible.
1: It is terrible.
0: Um, now, tell us about um, Equitable Care, uh, the program that you have developed. When did you first decide and how was that process of
1: coming about? Yeah. That so it was actually my friend, Angie Gunn, who is a sex therapist and sex worker who came up with the idea and initially... She was overseeing the process and she uh, gathered a coalition of people who are interested in creating some kind of a certification that would help therapists learn how to work with sex workers as therapy clients. So I was a part of the coalition initially, and she's also my friend. Um, And then through the pandemic and just not having capacity to continue overseeing the process, I Mm -hmm. stepped up um, and we decided to move forward with kind of me taking the lead. Um, and so we finished the curriculum. It's a it's a 12-week course where clinicians, no matter where they are in their um, studying, so they can be interns, grad students, or clinicians, licensed or unlicensed, um, will learn a variety of things. But the goal is to teach them how to work with sex workers as therapy clients. And then they're required to work with a sex worker client before they receive the certification. And we talk to the sex worker directly to ensure that they've actually been treating them well. So um, yeah, our first, first cohort is happening now and it started in July. So they're mm-hmm. they're going to finish in at the end of this month um, and then October, we'll have another cohort and it's been going great so far. And I think that it's, what I have heard from the clinicians who are taking the course is that a lot of what they're learning are things that they wish they had known sooner and not even just things necessarily related to sex work, just broadly uh, shifting kind of their lens and approach to therapy. So I think it's really, it's really rewarding because not only are we ultimately helping sex workers, we're ultimately helping any of the therapy clients that they see because we're talking to them about how mandated reporting is um, a problematic and police based kind of how therapists are cops essentially. We're talking to them about abuse and how to navigate working with couples where there is abuse present and that therapy is not an appropriate resource for um if the goal is to diminish abuse. Um, and we talk to them about like a variety of things that just help therapy like all of their clients and then we get into like what's the difference between trafficking and sex work why do we want decrim versus legalization so we talk about things that are specific oh to sex. Good, yeah.
0: good 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 because a lot of people don't fully understand um the difference yep. and then it, it, breaking down human trafficking is another yep. thing to people because i personally for as long as i've been in the business i've never seen anybody that was trafficked that didn't want to be like If, you know, I knew pimps and I knew, you know, they would have their hoes, but those, they very much wanted to be in that situation. But it's not that when I remember the Walmart, remember the Walmart scare people saying, and I'm like, no, they, nobody's going looking for people or for, yeah. in fact, I've noticed as I've gotten older, I've been in way more demand. So I've Mm -hmm. noticed if anything, men like older women and it's really Mm -hmm. popular.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, we definitely do a, a, an entire course dedicated to the difference between trafficking and sex work. Um, and then we have a whole course where we're talking about anti sex work rhetoric, and we get into how like hysteria around trafficking has even mm to exist, and why it is lucrative for um, the government and under other industries to make people believe that they're going to be kidnapped in Walmart, because the reality is how trafficking actually happens is that it's typically parents, and it's typically family, and typically yeah. boyfriend and typically the situation is, to give one example it's like maybe a 15 year old who lives at home, who's gay and his, his uh dad does not want him living in the house because he's gay. So the dad kicks him out. So he's forced to go live on the street. And once he's on the street, he finds someone who's like, I can generate income for you. If you go fuck these people, then they go fuck the people. And the the person keeps the money. That's what trafficking actually looks like. But it's, no, no government structures want to acknowledge that that's what trafficking looks like, because then that means that in order to fix it, they'd have to provide housing for people. They'd have to provide healthcare for people. They'd have to have basic income for people. And those are things they don't want to do. So instead, it makes more sense to center it around this narrative that people are going to be kidnapped, that people, that little white girls are going to be sold off into sex trade slavery in Russia or some shit, because mm-hmm. that fear that, um, comes out of, like, save the children, save the women, is lucrative. People want to give their money to that. Uh Um, So it becomes this whole um, thing, and people buy into it because there's, like, an emotional pull and an emotional response, when the reality is the majority of trafficking happens with people that they know, similar to abuse, similar to uh, rape and assault, right? It's typically people we know. And in order to shift those things, we have to provide people with their basic needs to live dignified lives and yeah. and, no, and
0: nobody's really running to um especially with the inflation going up, you know this inflation's crazy mm-hmm. and uh it, people the way they're surviving that's the reality of stuff you yeah. know like in New York right now, I'm trying to look for an apartment and they're like 4 or 5 grand for apartment. Thank God they and now, in a way and I never thought I would say cuz I profited off Airbnb before in the past but I'm kind of glad they outlawed it because it's now being where it's impossible to yeah. just get a place to live. And right. but they're giving tax deduction to all these owners for having empty units. You know what I mean? And the and in a, it it's just a shame, you know what I'm saying? And uh stuff mm-hmm. needs to be cracked down
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now how, um, with this equity care, how does one therapist find out about it or, um,
1: yeah, so So, how
0: therapists out there could get involved. So if anybody's listening, they could share with their therapist.
1: Absolutely. So if you just Google equitable care certification, we call it ECC for short. But if you Google equitable care certification, you'll find our website. And on the website, you can take um, just our intro course. If you're like, I don't want to take the full Full course, the full 12 weeks. You can take our intro course, which is essentially just a how to work with sex workers 101. We also have a just a brief written guide for therapists to look at, which is free. Um, And then you can sign up for the full course as well. And you can also make donations. Um, And the great thing about the work that we do is that half of all of the income that we generate goes to sex workers directly. So um, even if you just donate, even if you are doing the 101 course, we're able to shift that money into um funds for sex workers directly Mm.
0: now the sex workers you find how are you finding the sex workers to go with the program like that um you said because when the therapist starts it for the 12 weeks you match Mm -hmm. them with a sex worker but you guys are also working with that sex worker Mm -hmm. as well Um, yeah how do you initially find those sex workers
1: Yeah, equitable care certification is a program of Zep Wellness, which is my nonprofit where we offer therapy to sex workers. Mm -hmm. So we actually have a network of sex workers who are waiting to be seen by therapists because Mm -hmm. we offer therapy. Um, And we also just work with other organizations that have that work with sex workers. So we work with the BIPOC, BIPOC collective, Liz Strata, Strippers United, Translation, Bantu, Safe Haven, a, a bunch of different just sex worker led organizations um, that we ask them, do you guys want free therapy? And they they uh, apply and then we oh, match.
0: Oh, OK. We match so them with, so with all those, your organization is called
1: Death with- Wellness.
0: Zeb Well. Now, when did you start Zeb Wellness? Wow, you're doing a lot of stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I started Zeb in I think it was 2019, and it initially started as um, me offering therapy to sex free therapy to sex workers, and me. Um, doing a rent relief fund for black trans women sex workers where we gave 500 dollars every month to a different black trans sex, uh, tra- black trans woman sex worker um and so it has basically just evolved from there um, we offered yoga briefly we offer energy work we did art classes for a bit we have a sex worker support group. Um, so we do a bunch of different things, uh, but at the center of it, it is that we're sex worker led. We offer services, free services to sex workers. And then we have the equitable care certification, which teaches therapists how to work with sex workers.
0: Wow. So you really are using your degree.
1: Yeah, very much. You're
0: very, so you, you, you've got a busy schedule on yourself.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, What are your plans you say for the future would because you have a lot going on here, but I understand like stuff is high and you're living in Miami. Um, Are you going to continue with sex work of keep on as long as you can and do this too as well or trying to manage it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely see myself as a lifelong sex worker. And Mm -hmm. for as long as I am interacting with cishet men, I'm going to be charging them for my time. (laughs) (laughs) So there's just that. Uh, Like the capacity or frequency in which I'm doing sex work, I'm sure will evolve and change over time. You know, like previously I was doing like full time, uh, full service sex work, and I'm not doing any full service at this time, but that Mm -hmm. may shift. So it really just depends, but I definitely see myself always being someone who is going to charge for like my erotic labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I'm continuing to kind of develop all of the academic and therapeutic and clinical stuff. I definitely want to keep building out ECC, offering more cohorts to clinicians. We're going to offer them every quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so Four times a year, we'll have a new cohort. Um I really would love to develop another training just around mandated reporting, which is a whole other topic that therapists need to have better uh, knowledge and skills around. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just continuing to offer a therapy to sex workers as well. So my my schedule really looks like Mondays and Tuesdays. I see therapy clients Wednesdays. I don't work and Tuesdays and th- uh, Thursdays and Fridays. I teach.
0: Oh, OK. OK. No, well, nowadays, like I myself, too, it's we have to just keep right now I'm trying to do my pod I have two different podcasts and I'm trying to I'm doing online sex work and I might do like sex pamph or something but you mm-hmm. you and I are both dissimilar. like just to pay our rents and our expenses we've got to keep on mm-hmm. keep on doing our, doing our thing and unfor- you know um like I would love to just stop like well, I do love my fans I do love them all but You know, like I live in New York, you live in Miami. It's just, it's it's just, and then if you have, if you're your own business, you got to put your money right back to your business and people don't understand that either. Um, especially, you know, you've got to generate the income. So I really applaud all your work. You're doing a great, great job. And this is very much needed. I really, um, I'm so glad I have you on back to the mandating, um, and I just want to touch on that a bit because I agree with you there with the mandating, but can we just go over a couple of things and examples yeah, so my audience can. can know? Because sometimes- people they they get the wrong perception so I just yeah, yeah absolutely yeah
1: so therapists are considered mandated reporters and what that means is if they suspect any kind of child abuse or neglect or abuse of the elderly or people with disabilities um, or if there's any suicidality with clients they are obligated to either make a call to CPS or involuntarily hospitalize people and the requirements around making that decision for a client are relatively vague so that means that they're left up to the therapist to decide. And therapists have a lot of biases and they have a lot of power. Um, And the reality is Therapists do not understand what happens once they make a call to CPS and what happens with families if they're going to have a child removed from the home. And they're under the assumption that removing a child from the home is a better option than leaving them at home if there's neglect or abuse, for instance. When the reality is once children are removed from the home, they are more likely to to, uh, experience sexual abuse, homelessness, assault of any kind in the system. So it ends up being this question where you're like, Uh, you are removing them from the family where you imagine that they're experiencing harm into another system where they're also going to experience harm and you see this as a better option. Why? And so... It's really talking through that with people, which is a really hard and difficult conversation for a number of reasons, um, and then talking about alternatives, which is essentially uh, asking people to think about what it means to keep kids with their families, what it means to offer resources to families who are struggling, identifying that the majority of calls to CPS are not actually about physical abuse. A lot of therapists and people generally are under the assumption that the calls to CPS are like the most horrifically violent like the child is being beat up every day. The majority of calls that are made to C- CPS are about neglect and neglect is often about need and poverty. So for instance, mm-hmm. if a child has, um hasn't been eating, if a child has dirty clothes, if a child isn't going to school that often is about poverty and need not neglect. So right. if that had resources, the child would be fed, the child would have clean clothes, the child would have capacity to go to school. Um, So it's about, uh, Shifting kind of how we perceive things and unpacking a lot of our biases, because the majority of therapists are white women, um, and figuring out how to get resources to families and acknowledging that removing a child from a home, regardless of if there is abuse actually happening, is still incredibly traumatizing, and they're going to continue experiencing harm in the system. So is it, again, is it a better option? Mm, Right. And
0: also, different cultures are different, um, different cultures have different practices. And, um, what like what you were saying with the white therapist, um for instance, and I'm just going to bring this up uh the natives do what's called snow baby, where they put the baby in the snow, it's like a snow bath, and the wrong person hearing that they might you know in the past, indigenous people have been punished for doing a practice that they've been doing for many years, so also understanding different cultures um within the community that's very important like you know because if people don't understand and i'm just using the example of uh i think it's called the snow when it snows they 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 give the baby a snow bath and it's part of Mm. i forgot what tribe but um it you know people in the past from these indigenous tribes have gotten in trouble
1: yeah yeah and ultimately the entire like system of cps was founded on removing black and brown and indigenous children from their families into white homes Mm -hmm. to diminish and eradicate black and brown and indigenous families. And that exact same system is doing what it's intended on doing today. Mm -hmm. The majority of children that are removed from their families are black and brown children, period. So it is the exact same uh, horrifically uh, racist system that is intended on disrupting and destroying and destabilizing black and brown families and separate from like the cps part of it the other side of it with mandated reporting um or just generally therapists being cops Mm -hmm. is um clients experiencing suicidality so the requirement for therapists is to baker act or involuntarily hospitalize someone if they're experiencing suicidality with intent um, and therapists generally believe that that is the best option, and they believe that they have the authority to make that decision, um, when the reality is involuntarily hospitalizing people, regardless of what's going on with them, often comes with humiliation, coercion, all kinds of traumatizing experiences being put into a place that they do not consent to. And the reality is people even people who are experiencing suicidality have the capacity to make decisions for themselves. So they can make a decision of whether or not they want to go into some kind of an institution or not. The therapist doesn't need to make that decision for them. And if they don't have the capacity to make that decision, their community can, not the therapist. A therapist is not the authority on what, if a person needs to be hospitalized or not. Um, so it's also talking about that too and shifting people's perspectives around self-harm and suicidality as well, because the the biggest thing here, and this kind of goes back to the the substance use conversation, is people have the capacity and are entitled to decide what they want to do with their body, even if it does not align with what you want them to do with their body. And so if that means that someone decides that they're going to end their life because they just cannot be here anymore, they don't want to be here anymore, it is not our decision to say to them, it's going to get better, we'll figure it out, you probably won't. And this is, again, going back to like the most therapists are white women, it comes from a position of privilege to be able to say it's going to get better. For white women, it probably will get better because they have the privilege of whiteness. Whereas a lot of clients who are coming, and this is whether they're white or not, but especially if they're not white, if they're black and brown, shit might not get fucking better ever. Things might potentially get worse. If you are a black trans person in Florida, currently, your life is horrific. It did yeah. not get better. It's gotten significantly more violent. So if, it, so it's, it's about self-determination and it's about therapists acknowledging that they don't know what's best for people and that their role is to support people and support people in their communities.
0: Right. Well, thank you, Rickhouse, so much. You have spoken so beautifully. I, I greatly applaud you for everything you are doing and, um, Thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge, because I just my whole mission with this podcast is to help sex workers. And I feel like you're you are doing the exact same thing and you are greatly needed. And um I appreciate your effort. Um, could Absolutely. you please let my audience know where they can find you? And again, I'm going to just repeat for you just to lay out everything, because I think this is very important. Maybe therapists are listening. I'm going to shove this in people's uh, DMs. Let them know where they could find you and everything else that you have to provide.
1: Absolutely. So you can follow me personally on Twitter, Raquel underscore Savage. That's R-A-Q-U-E-L underscore Savage. You can find Equitable Care Certification on Twitter by going to at Equitable Care. Um, And then you can also just Google Equitable Care Certification if you'd like to find the website. Um, You can also find Zep Wellness, which is my nonprofit on Twitter, which is just Zep Wellness, That's Z like zebra, E-P-P, P -P, P like Peter, Zep Wellness. And similarly, you can just Google Zep Wellness as well and find the website. And all of the resources and things that you would ever want to find would be there. And if you are kinky and want to tip me, you can follow me on OnlyFans, OnlyFans.com slash Raquel Savage.
0: Yes, guys. So if you're listening and you're curious and you you want to help some kind of way for all her efforts, uh, go ahead and tip there. My name is Marcella Lonzo. You can reach me at my IG is Marcella Sobella. My Facebook is Marcella Sobella and my YouTube is Marcella Sobella and all my sites are at marcellasobella.com. Thank you again, Raquel, for coming on Get Schooled.
1: You're